and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of The Remnant Call. I'm your host, Brother Frank, and glad to be here with you tonight. And I'm I'm fired up, folks, about this night, tonight's program. I am excited. Not too long ago, I had read an article back in February. Uh, it, it was titled, Nine Reasons the Shroud of Turin is the Real Deal. I'd read it on WorldNet Daily. And the Shroud of Turin is something I've been personally interested in on and off through the years, but it's like anything else. You kind of you get a little interested in, and then you let it fall by the wayside, and then you look at it again. Well, this article really kind of stirred me up and, and got me looking into it, and, and I thought, man, I, I would love to do a show on this. And, well, I thought, man, if I'm going to get somebody on here, I need to get somebody who knows about the Shroud. So I looked up, and I said, who knows really about the Shroud? And so we're going to bring on a guest here in a few minutes, Barry Schwartz, and I'm going to introduce him here in just a minute. This guy knows about the shroud but just a few things i want to mention last week's show if you didn't catch it on a solemn assembly folks you got to go back there one of the best remnant call shows we've had in a long time brother benjamin just shared from the depths of his heart on the solemn assembly and uh, folks we are living in a in some tough extremely tough and, and confusing times and there's no better way to kind of get all that confusion and the fog out of the brain then taking some time to set apart yourself under the Lord and, and get close to Him and renew that relationship and coming together in a group of people in a solemn assembly. Folks, it's what they did all through the Bible when tough times were there. And we don't have to wait until everything's fallen completely apart before we partake in this. And so if you didn't get to hear that, please listen in to last week's episode. And I'm not going to mess around much longer because tonight is going to be an exciting show. So I am not going to wait and here we're going to bring on our guest barry schwartz barry uh, i'm going to just read a few things before i bring you in folks if you don't know who barry is he was the official documenting photographer of the shroud of turin research project this team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the shroud in 1978 today he plays an influential role in the shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized shroud of turin website shroud.com the oldest largest and most extensive shroud resource on the internet with more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries in 2009 he founded the shroud of turin education and research association a nonprofit uh, corporation to which he donated the website and his extensive shroud photographic collection, as well as many other important shroud resources, in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future research and study. He currently serves as the president of the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And with that, I'm going to bring on Barry. Barry, are you here with us? I'm here with you, my friend. 
Well, I just want to say thank you from myself and from the Remnant Call listeners here. We are excited tonight to have you on. Barry, you have uh, obviously are familiar with the, with the Shroud of Turin, and, and obviously we talked about you were, you were a photographer, but Barry, how did you come to get yourself into this project? Well, that's always a good question because uh, one of the first things I, I want to make clear is uh, I'm Jewish. So, <laughs> and I, uh, back in the 70s, I operated a photographic studio, commercial studio, in Santa Barbara, California. And uh, I did a lot of, uh, you know, I did some advertising work and things of that nature, but I did a lot of scientific and medical and technical things. So I, I became pretty well known as somebody who was uh, very technically competent. And so I was contracted by one of the companies in Santa Barbara that was a contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And I always tell people, of course, you know, their primary product was atomic bombs. And so obviously I, I was involved in this project as a photographic consultant for seven months. The end of the seven months, we finished the work and we moved on. Um, and the gentleman I'd worked with called me back. And I thought, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're always hoping it's the next project. Well, he called me back, and I said, ah, another project. He goes, well, not exactly. He says, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? I kind of laughed, and I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. And Don laughed, and he said, so am I, remember? Don was one of the other members of our team that happened to be Jewish. And Don explained to me that some researchers at Sandia Labs and Los Alamos National Labs had taken a photograph of the Shroud and put it into a device, an old analog device, that revealed the, the three-dimensional characteristics of the image. Normal photographs don't yield that same result. When they put the shroud image in, it yielded the natural relief of a 3D form, a human form. Now, this machine simply takes the lights and darks of an image and stretches them proportionate into 3D space. So normal photographs give you a jumble of shapes and things, but nothing that looks natural. Yet the shroud image creates the natural relief of a human form. So based on that, this group of scientists decided to put a team together, and they were going to try and get permission to see if they could go to Turin, perform the first ever in-depth scientific examination of this piece of cloth. So Don asked me if I would like to be involved, and I said, no. <laughs> so I sort of immediately went, no, I don't think I should get involved with this. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that maybe I should go, and I'm going to be very candid, even though I know everybody's listening, I was really thinking free trip to Italy. So I wasn't <laughs> taking it very seriously. And interestingly enough, uh, as team members were brought on board from different expertise and disciplines, um, we had two members join our team from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. And one of them, Don Lynn, may he rest in peace, was the head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo projects for NASA. So he was an imaging scientist who became my hero on the team, happened to be a nice Catholic guy. And a couple months in, I was feeling, again, quite insecure about getting on this team. And I said to Don, gee, you know, what am, what am I doing on this team? And he looked at me and he said, well, apparently you've forgotten that the man in question is a Jew. And I said, no, I knew that about Jesus. And he said, so you wouldn't think God wants one of his chosen people on our team? And I kind of laughed at that, and I said, no, I never thought that at all. And so he said, look, stop complaining. Just go to Turin and do the very best job you can do. God doesn't tell us in advance what the plan is, but one day you'll know. 
And those words kept me on the team. And here it is 40 years later. And this is all I do now. I've retired from photography and video production. And now I'm dedicated to the website and to our nonprofit and to educating people about the shroud so that people of faith to whom this may be very important have access to the very best information so they can make up their own minds about this piece of cloth. Now, Barry, you you had kind of a, quite a journey. You didn't you you were even though you were uh, and folks you heard these are real scientists that were involved in this project from the beginning. These were not your run of the mill. We're talking people that are coming from Los Alamos, and this I mean this is a big time scientist. But Barry, you were not easily convinced that this was the real thing. That's true. That's true. Now, look, in those days, the conventional wisdom was that this was probably some kind of an artwork or a painting. And I stupidly opened my mouth before we went over there and said, oh, you know, give us five minutes and we'll find the paint and come home. Well, I have to be honest that once they brought the shroud and put it before us, I whipped out my 10X magnifier, which photographers always used to carry around with them, And I started looking for paint, pigments, or binders, things that would indicate that some some kind of uh, dye or image or something had been applied to create the image. And I didn't see anything. So right away, even I would say within the first 30 minutes of looking at that piece of cloth, I was pretty convinced that it wasn't a painting. But it took another 17 years before all the peer-reviewed science and remember, I had access to everything as a member of the team. It, was, it wasn't until 17 years later, in about 1995, before the last piece of evidence was presented to me that basically removed all of my inhibitions about it. And it was then that I came to believe that this has to be the real thing. So I didn't rush. And uh, if I may, I'd like to tell you exactly what happened that was that last piece of evidence. Absolutely. When you look at a color photo of the shroud, you'll see that the blood stains on the shroud are still reddish in color. Well, old blood turns black or brown often within an hour or less. And so if this is 2,000 years old, why is the blood still reddish in color? Well, in 1995, I was speaking to one of our other team members, Dr. Alan Adler, happened to be the third Jewish guy on the team. And Al said to me that he had come to believe pretty much this got to be the real thing. And of course, I was still unconvinced about the red blood. And Adler was a blood chemist. So when I said that to him, he kind of got upset with me. He said, didn't you read the paper I wrote 17 years ago? And I had to remind him, Al, you're a chemist and I'm a photographer. (laughs) So maybe I read it and didn't quite get it. But in his paper, he had pointed out that when he did the chemical analysis of the blood of the shroud, he found a very high content of bilirubin. Now, I always say in my lectures, Billy Rubin isn't a Jewish guy from New York, (laughs) but Billy Rubin is a compound manufactured out of the liver, particularly when somebody's been beaten, tortured, uh, not given any water, gone into hypovolemic shock, and the liver starts pumping Billy Rubin into the bloodstream. Billy Rubin is called a hemolytic agent. It breaks down the cell walls with red blood cells. That releases the hemoglobin, and that stays red forever. So when Adler told me that, it removed that last piece of you know, question that I had and revealed to me that now that I had a, a credible explanation for why the blood remained red, um, that I really didn't have any other things to stop me from coming to accept that the shroud was authentic. And so from about 1995 on, I did that. 
Well, that's amazing. I mean, basically proving that whoever's blood this was was in some type of incredible amount of trauma. Uh, Absolutely. To cause that and, to you happen. Know, there's been some recent um, research done that basically confirmed that by doing some other tests that also confirmed that whoever the man of the shroud was, his blood uh, was the blood of someone who had been severely tortured. Well, you have been able to, uh, of course, from the history of when this, the first photograph of this thing was, was taken, and if you could explain a little bit about how we actually got to see what was really hidden within the shroud, what, what, the, what the normal eye couldn't see, and, and the evidence that that kind of brought forward that basically piled on to all the other things which led up to this point of that Billy Rubin being the final clincher. Uh, how did that? How did that photo first get actually uh, realized? The, the we see it looks kind of like a negative on the internet. Sure, sure, and well, basically, um, nobody really knew much about the Shroud of Turin outside of northern Italy until 1898. That was when a gentleman named Secundo Pia, who was a lawyer, um, was given the opportunity to make the first photograph of the Shroud. And he, of course, had to climb up on a big scaffolding and use a huge big view camera uh, and glass plates and um, photograph the shroud through glass. So he had to deal with reflections. He had the fluctuating voltage of the royal palace where the shroud, or I'm sorry, of the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Baptist where the shroud was being publicly displayed. And he made these first glass plate photographs of the shroud. Well, once he made the photographs and he looked at them, he realized something that hadn't really been understood before or even noticed before. You know, the image on the shroud is only 15 or so percent darker than the background, so it's very subtle. And there are burns and scorches and patches running along either side of the image that are very distracting to the eye. So the image itself is very subtle. When he photographed it on black and white film, and held up the glass plates, and anybody who's old enough to know what film is knows that a negative reverses the lights and darks of what you're looking at. When he did that and held it up, he realized that his glass plate negative was in fact a positive, and so the image on the shroud itself must be a negative, or at least have the lights and darks reversed like a photograph negative photographic negative. Well, when he said that publicly, people immediately accused him of some kind of darkroom fraud or manipulation, and it wasn't until 1931, 33 years later, when the Shroud was photographed for the second time with the exact same results, that his work was vindicated. So that ushered in, in 1898, uh, those photographs were reproduced in books and other publications, and that ushered in the beginning of the scientific era of Shroud studies, because people could then see this photograph and the word of it spread. And so more and more people became familiar with it. So Secundo Pia's photographs really ushered in the scientific era of shroud studies. So when you see that shroud, now, or the, the negative, or well, actually would have been a positive, uh, Correct. all of a sudden that the person's image... Um, kind of, you know, there's all kinds of different stuff that appears, not just the body where you can see the hands, but you see a lot of stuff going on around not only the front, but actually the backside of the shroud 
through that. And I know that, that a lot of that stuff um, kind of leads into that evidence that really brought you to understand. Um, could, if you could kind of walk our listeners through, what are the things sure. that you could actually see in there that, that is, is scientifically can be explained? Well, first of all, um, there are blood stains that soak through the shroud that were on the cloth by contact, meaning that the only way these blood stains, which, by the way, the forensic experts who have studied it all agree these are natural blood flows that could have only gotten onto the cloth by direct contact with the body. And they actually penetrate and soak into the cloth and are actually visible on the reverse side of the cloth, but the image is not. The image actually only resides on the top few microns on the top fibrils of the fibers of the cloth. At any rate, we see blood stains at the head as if from a cap or crown of thorns. We see a face that's swollen and beaten the way a prize fighter looks after he's lost a big fight. We see a spear wound in the side with a blood flow coming from that. We see scourge marks covering the body, not just from the back of the body, because we see both the front and back, ventral and dorsal of the body, but, blood, but we see scourge marks on the front of the body. And, you know, if you're standing behind someone and whipping them with a Roman flagrum, if you take just a half step closer, those thongs are going to come around the front and they're going to, they're going to scourge the front of the body as well. Now, an artist, in, no artist in history has ever depicted scourge wounds on the front of the man, yet the, the man of the shroud has scourge wounds not just on his back but on his front. We also have an exit wound at the wrist, near the wrist, from a crucifixion nail and blood stains at the feet from crucifixion nails. So everything that's described in the New Testament that was done to Jesus is forensically accurately documented on the Shroud of Turin. And so this is why some, so many people believe this must be the cloth that wrapped Jesus's body after he was taken to the tomb. Although the Romans performed these tortures on lots of people, we only know of one man, a man who proclaimed himself king of the Jews, who was given a cap or crown of thorns to further humiliate him. Oh, you're the king, huh? Well, here's your crown. And this man's got bloodstains covering his entire head. Not just in the little circlet the way artists have depicted it, but literally covering his scalp because no Roman soldier is going to take time to weave a pretty crown to put on this criminal that they're about to execute. So it's not even logical to think that they did anything more than smash this nasty thorn bush down onto his head as his supposed crown. So everything that's on the cloth documented is definitely what we would expect and what it says was done to Jesus in the Gospels. It's 100% forensically accurate. Now, there's some differences between, obviously, the blood stains that are on there and the actual image. And I think those were some of the things that kind of really begins to really shock people that when they try to recreate this, that the image that's on the shroud of the face and everything else is not the same type of what we see with the blood. And it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate. How, I mean, what is it about that that makes this so unique of, of an actual um, piece, piece of cloth? Well, you know, what's amazing is that the image is strictly a surface phenomenon that does not penetrate in. Now, obviously, if an artist was using any kind of paints or pigments or dyes, they would soak into this linen cloth, and we would find that the case when we did our microscopy and other tests. In the end, we found that the image resides 
in a few, few microns on the top surface of the top fibrils with no penetration into the cloth. So that pretty much eliminates any application of dyes, paints, or pigments that would uh, typically be what an artist might use. We didn't find any of that. And as a matter of fact, one of the photographs I made of the shroud was with light transmitted through the cloth. And we saw that all the blood soaked in and there was added density where the blood soaked in. Uh, but when you transmit light through, you can see the blood stains. There are water stains from the fire when they put out the fire of 1532. All the scorches and burns and patches and holes, all visible with transmitted light. No image visible because the image did not penetrate into the cloth because it's not a painting. And that was the first piece of scientific evidence that we found that supports the fact that the shroud is not an artwork. Okay. Uh, one of the things that's been interesting to me, and, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, because uh, I was reading about how they did in 2015 had done a study of some of the uh, botanical or the pollens that had been found in the shroud. Uh, that kind of lent credence to the origin of it. Uh, have you? I'm sure you've looked into a lot of that. Sure. Um, look, it was uh, the first uh, botanical evidence. I would say probably started back in about 1973. But in 1978, a gentleman named Max Fry, who was a Swiss criminalist, was given the opportunity to participate during our examination of the shroud, and he lifted tape samples from different areas across the cloth. And in those tape samples, he found debris from plants, pollens from different parts of the world. Now, the sadness is that uh, Max Fry died before he could complete his magnum opus and document all the things that he found. Uh, the frustration some of us have is that Max was not a palynologist. He wasn't an expert in pollens. That was sort of a hobby of his. So, you know, to say his work is definitive is difficult because others have looked at it and there have been some challenges to some of his conclusions. But what he was able to determine was that he found pollens from specific plants that were indigenous only to the region around Israel or Palestine. And so a lot of people say there's, that's a strong piece of evidence for the fact that the cloth was at some point in its history in that location. Now, the only problem with pollens is some of them can be airborne or insect-borne or born on our clothing. So it's difficult, if not impossible, to determine when those pollens arrived on the shroud. You know, they used to hang it from balconies to display it publicly. The Savoy family that owned it for about 600 years or so, uh, the ruling family of the monarchy of Italy, and they used to hang it from the balcony and so people could see it. And so, you know, some pollens certainly might have landed it on, landed on it that way. So the pollen evidence, because Max never really finished his work nor published it in any of the peer-reviewed journals that might have given more credence to his conclusions, unfortunately that didn't happen. So the pollen evidence becomes more anecdotal at this point in time, although many, many shroud scholars uh, look at it as definitive. Uh, in my case, because I was hanging out with scientists from Los Alamos and Sandia and Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, their standards are very high as to what is considered proven. They used to chastise me every time I wrote proven on our website. So, uh, so I can only say that although that does support the authenticity of the shroud, um, I can't call it definitive scientifically certified proof. But it is one more kind of 
piece of the puzzle. It seems to Absolutely. add up Absolutely. into an overall. It's not just about one one piece of evidence. It, it, there is a plethora of evidence. One of the things I we kind of I wanted to just jump back to for a moment, and that was the uh, when you look on the shroud and you see the part where the nail prints, uh, noticing that they're a little in the wrist. Um, why would that actually be a little more? You know, we always see them right in the center of the hand, uh, but this sure. shows it a little bit lower. Why is that important to actually being more uh, authentic than just right in the center? Sure. Well, look, art, artists over the centuries have had artistic license, and they can sort of do it the way they want to. And if it says hand, well, the middle of the palm seems to be a likely place to put it. In reality, a strong man, you know, there's not a lot of tissue in our hands. And if you stuck a nail right through the center of the palm, a strong man, especially under the duress of being tortured and crucified, could rip his hand loose. Well, I always tell people to take their thumb and their little finger, put it together, and that causes kind of the two fleshy parts of your palm to be divided by a groove running down the middle. And that's called the thinner furrow, for those interested. And if you're a Roman soldier, you can grab the thumb and the little finger and you've got a perfect spot to put the nail, it's about one inch down from the center of the palm toward the wrist. It's still in the palm. So it doesn't go against what it says in the Gospels in any way. It's just a more uh, credible place. And by putting it there at a slight angle, it goes through a part of the hand where you're not going to be able to get your wrist or your hand free. And so the Romans knew how to do this. They did a lot of it, and they knew exactly where to place it. And so what we see on the shroud, we only see the back of the hand, so we see the exit wound. And, of course, this has caused some people to say, well, wait a minute, uh, it's supposed to be in the hand. Well, it is in the hand. It's maybe an inch down from the center of the palm toward the wrist. So it's absolutely consistent with what, what's been described, and it's forensically more accurate than any of the artist's depictions. Now, I've mentioned artistic license. I'm going to point one other thing out that I like to tell people. You know, we've seen many artworks over the centuries depicting the crucifixion of Jesus. They always show Jesus with a modesty cloth covering his private area. Interestingly enough, the man on the shroud is nude. Now, if you're an artist in medieval times uh, and you're going to create an artwork, you're going to put a modesty cloth there because that was the conventional way of doing things. Yet the man of the shroud is completely naked. And so this is another piece of evidence that goes against some medieval artisting this and creating a painting with no paint. Wow, that that is a that's amazing. Um, one of the interesting things uh, you mentioned earlier, of course, about um, uh, the Billy Rubin on there. They, I had read, and I just don't want to know if this is valid or not. That they had uh, were able to do some some actual blood type out of the actual blood stains, and is is that true? Yeah, they they've been able to determine, I think, a blood type, and again. You know, I'm not uh, not my field of expertise, so I'm not sure how reliable that is. But okay. uh, but it's generally accepted that the type of blood found on the man of the shroud is type AB, which would represent about 10% of the global population. So it certainly narrows it down, but, you know, there's still millions and millions of people that have type AB blood. Now, typically there's something called an RH factor that's associated with blood typing, uh, RH positive or negative. Whatever the enzymes are that are responsible for um, delineating blood, uh, the RH factor in blood um, don't exist on the shroud. And the reason for that is it's old and the blood on the shroud is very degraded. 
um, which is why DNA analysis on the shroud is never going to be a very successful proposition. That coupled with the fact that the thousands of people over the centuries that have touched it, breathed over it, examined it, repaired it, prayed over it, cried over it, all have left their DNA on it because we've in recent years sort of learned the fact that we are shedding our epithelial cells constantly. So if you were to lean over the shroud, you have now left your DNA on it. And, you know, I happen to be a long-haired Jewish guy, just like the man of the shroud. So my DNA is on there too. So it's one of the reasons that DNA analysis is probably not going to be a great test for the shroud. That and the fact that... uh, DNA analysis is a comparative analysis, and I don't know anybody that's got Jesus's DNA profile. Now, we could learn some things like genotype and what part of the world this man came from, and an anthropo- uh, anthropological study was done by a couple of qualified uh, Italian researchers comparing the long bones of the man of the shroud to the anthropological tables that everybody uses, and they were de- able to determine that the man of the shroud is a Semitic male, what a surprise, you know? Wow. So, so I think the evidence is very strong. And, and like I said, I was not easy to convince only 17 years. <laughs> so. Now, was there, since you were talking about the, you know, of course, the image of, that, of the shroud, is, which is, doesn't actually sink all the way into like a paint. Not at all. Or, you know, the, is there where the blood actually comes down, can they tell if there is a, a natural... Over, I mean, can they see that a natural overlap? Because what, what's interesting to me is that who, if this was truly a fraud, now how did somebody know to get all these markings correct that could only be well, seen this, you know what I mean, this way, and then well, lay down it, only a specific blood that would show someone it, who was tortured? It, hey, listen, you, you hit the nail on the head on this one, if I pardon my pun there. Um, sure. The blood was apparently on the cloth before the image was formed, and wherever there's blood, there's no image, which means that if an artist were to try and do this, he'd first have to put absolutely 100% accurate, forensically accurate blood flows onto the cloth and then create the image around it without paint pigments or binders. Well, obviously, we couldn't do that today if we wanted to. So that just makes it virtually impossible for someone to create it. And look, over the last 40 years, I've probably looked at every attempt by the skeptics to create something uh, that they said, well, this is how the shroud was done. Well, you know, you can make something that looks like the shroud. As a matter of fact, some of those researchers have used my photographs as a basis for their work. And although you can get something that sort of looks like the shroud, none of their results ever come close to matching the chemical or physical characteristics that we have documented on that cloth. So if you're going to tell me this is how the shroud was made, then you better get the chemistry and the physics right. Nobody's even come close, ever. So, like I said, making something look like the shroud, not so hard. Making something with the same chemical and physical properties, so far, impossible. Well, it's interesting. We'll, we, we will prove things on a whole lot less evidence, uh, even today in a, in a courtroom, than what is beginning to stack up in, just in this conversation we've had here uh, so far tonight. Um, one of the things that, of course, we, you know, there's always the, the skeptics out there that have... Well, I know them. Uh, I know some of them personally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you've got to meet a few yeah. of them. 
there's been attempts to recreate. Has anybody ever come close to recreating anything like this? No. Period. No. Period. I can say okay. that to an absolute certainty. Gotcha. Uh, one of the things um, I, you know, that's one of the, of course, was touted back in the day. What this was a fake because there was some carbon uh, dating that you know put it back to uh, was sure. it twelve to thirteen something. Uh, you've done some. Of course, you're very familiar with that. Uh, how is that not accurate evidence to the actual age of this? Very good question. Uh, Ten years after we examined the shroud in 1978. They allowed a small sample to be taken from one corner of the cloth 10 years later in 1988. And three laboratories, uh, what they did was they cut a little strip next to a seam that sensibly was actually part of the actual shroud. They cut from one little corner, and that was it. And they took that little strip, and they cut it in half, put one half aside, took the other half, divided it in thirds, and gave it to the three labs. Those three labs had spent over a week in a major protocol meeting developing a protocol that they intended to follow during the examination and carbon dating of the shroud. And they violated every one of their own protocols. Now, any good scientist will tell you that if you have a huge, long piece of cloth like this and you take a sample from one corner, you can't be certain without another sample from somewhere else that you have a control there, that you, you might be looking at something that isn't correct. Well, when those radiocarbon dating results came out, there was this hue and cry that the shroud is a fake. That's what all the headlines around the world said. Never mind the fact that, you know, in real science, if you do 100 tests in 99.1 direction and one points in the opposite direction, that's considered an outlier and is typically discarded. But in the case of the shroud, they threw away the 99 and kept the one test that said the shroud was a fake. Now, ironically, in addition to violating their protocol, they were supposed to do chemical analysis. Not one of the labs did chemical analysis on the sample before it was destroyed during the testing. They were supposed to have a blind study and not know which of the samples they were given came from the shroud. And yet, there was only one that had the distinctive herringbone weave of the shroud, so they all knew immediately which one came from the shroud. They were all supposed to uh, not talk to each other, yet we have strong evidence now that they were talking to each other on a daily basis, practically, during the process. And the saddest part is once the results were released, um, the three laboratories were being supervised by a gentleman who is director of research at the British Museum. He'd been assigned the task of supervising the three labs. Well, as soon as the results came out, the Oxford lab received one million pounds sterling anonymous donation for debunking the shroud, and this gentleman from the British Museum left the British Museum and took a permanent chair at Oxford with some of that money. So the real question is, when did they know they were going to get a million pounds? A million pounds sterling in 1988 was about $2.5 million. So it would be, what, $7 million or $8 million. It was a huge amount of money. And mm -hmm. I hate to think that this, this whole thing came down to the money, but they used the shroud to promote radiocarbon dating as an important uh, archaeological test, and it's now a $4 billion a year industry. Well, look, once these results came out, some of us who had been studying the shroud knew that there was evidence of its existence long before the earliest date that the carbon dating lab said it could be. 
one of them being very specifically uh, a Hungarian prey codex that's still in the museum in Budapest, and it shows an illustration of the shroud with the herringbone weave, Jesus nude with his hands over his private areas, and there's a set of L-shaped burn holes on the shroud that predate the fire that caused the really obvious damage, and we know that from an artwork, a copy that was made of the shroud before that fire. And this artist included those in his illustration of the shroud. And now that isn't a coincidence. They would have been the most prominent visible thing on the shroud before you even noticed the image, you would have seen these L-shaped burn holes. Well, the date of that codex is 1191. That's already 70-some years earlier than the earliest possible date given by the carbon dating laboratories. So it's obvious that there was something wrong, but nobody knew exactly what was wrong, and something like 12 years went by until about, about 2000, when two researchers presented a paper at a conference in Italy, and they claimed that the area chosen for the radiocarbon dating sample site had been repaired in medieval times using a very refined technique called French invisible reweaving. Well, a lot of people said, well, no such thing exists. You'd always see it. Well, it turns out that that's not true, that French invisible reweaving was developed in the French court in about the 1500s to repair tapestries that were imaged on both sides, so it had to be perfect on both sides of the repair. Well, it turns out that the shroud was in France at that moment in its history, and remembering that it was owned by the Savoy family, the monarchy, so they were friends of the French court, it makes very good sense that at some point in time somebody repaired this. Well, when that paper was published, um, rather, when that paper was presented, I was there at the conference in the front row with my camera, as I always am, and sure enough, I ran up to the researchers and said, look, you've got to let me publish that on trial.com. So I published it, and within a day or two, I got a phone call from Ray Rogers of Los Alamos National Labs, the head of chemistry on our team, and he read me the riot act for publishing this, claiming that these two weren't, weren't even scientists. They were members of what he called the lunatic fringe. They were just using their eyes, and so I should, uh, I should take it down. And I said, but Ray, if you've read the paper, you'll see that they've done good science. What they did was they got photographs of one of the samples from the Zurich lab and took it to three different textile experts who all independent of each other noticed that there had been some repair work done. Roger still had a little piece of this in his safe that would have been from an adjoining area of the shroud. He said, give me five minutes, I'm going to prove these people wrong. About an hour and a half later, the phone rings, and it's Roger's, and he's much more sedate. And he says, I don't believe it. And I said, what, Ray? And he said, I think they're right. Because when Ray looked at that area that would have been just adjacent to where the carbon dating sample was taken from, he not only found dye, he found cotton had been interwoven which is forbidden by Jewish law, by the way, on a, a burial shroud of somebody of high stature. He found cotton interwoven, not only interwoven, but somebody had dyed the cotton to match the color of the shroud so the repair wouldn't be visible. And he was able to determine that it was ma uh, a rose matter dye from the matter root plant. He was able to even identify the kind of dye that was used. You know, linen is hard to dye. Why would somebody interweave cotton? Because it's very easy to dye cotton and cover up the repair that was done. Well, it turns out that was the precise area 
they took the radiocarbon dating sample from. So Rogers requested, remember I said they cut it a strip off and put one half aside? Rogers mm-hmm. requested a piece of that reserve sample, examined it, found exactly the same things that he had found on the sample he had had in his safe, and was able to publish the first peer-reviewed article that challenged the radiocarbon dating in a very highly regarded peer-reviewed scientific journal. And basically his conclusion is that the sample site chosen was anomalous, did not represent the main body of the shroud cloth, and thus the carbon dating of the shroud was not valid. Mm. Well, okay, let me ask you a question. I know that um, from seeing some stuff that at one point, and I don't remember when this was, they had they put a back onto the shroud, correct? Correct. They, it, there was yeah. one placed on there in 1534 after the big fire in Chambry, France, that caused all the visible damage on the cloth. They mm-hmm. put patches in the holes and a backing sheet onto it. That was there until 2002 when the patches were removed, the charred areas around the holes were scraped and uh, vacuumed away. Uh, They steamed some of the shroud to get some of the creases out, which, of course, is a terrible thing to do, an ancient piece of linen. And they removed the backing sheet and sewed a newer backing sheet onto it, which is the one that's on there now. Is it possible that some of those um, actual uh, pieces got into uh, into the carbon dating that were on the backing possibly, too, and could have affected any of that? Probably not. Uh, okay. The piece that they cut was a very distinct piece from the, you know, the shroud itself, and not from the backing sheet, which, by the way, was of a different material than the shroud itself. So it would have been easily distinguished uh, between the two. Um, so what they dated was one little corner of the shroud that had been repaired, apparently, in probably in uh, probably in the 1500s sometime, and. They mixed in modern or more modern cotton in with the linen, so that skewed the date. And that's the basis, I think, right now. Uh, the scientific basis for that is is two papers, because Benford and Marino, the, the couple that first presented this work that Rogers thought he was going to prove wrong, um, several years after Rogers died, right after he died, right after his paper was published, sadly, um, several years later, they published another paper in another highly regarded Italian peer-reviewed journal, uh, Chemistry Today. And so there are now two articles in peer-reviewed journals that challenge the radiocarbon dating, not because they did anything wrong, but because they dated a sample that had been an area of the shroud manipulated and consequently was not a valid sample for dating. And had they done their chemical analysis, which was part of their own protocol, they might have discovered this. But all three laboratories ignored their own protocols. So it's kind of sad because to this day, when I mention the Shroud of Turin to people and I'm sitting on an airplane, they say, well, gee, I thought they proved that was a fake years ago. So the radiocarbon date squashed the Shroud, if you will. And it's, it's a shame because... In 1979, there was a big spread in Life magazine. In 1980, a huge article in National Geographic. And for those eight or nine, ten years, uh, I think the world pretty much accepted that it looks like this has got to be the real thing. Then the carbon dating came along, and one test, and they, it just sort of caused everybody to throw away all the other evidence in favor of the one that said it was a fake. And it's a shame, and it really bothered me, not because my faith relies on the shroud, and I hope nobody's faith relies on the shroud, but because 
the people to whom this matters, to whom this is important, my Christian brothers and sisters out there, deserve the truth about this. Whether their faith relies on it or not isn't the case. It's, what's important is they should know that this verifies everything the Gospels tell us that was done to Jesus. Well, Barry, one of the things that I had seen um, back one more question about the whole carbon dating, that there was a test that was done in 2013. Uh, now, I know that that was in conjunction, I believe. Uh, it was in Italy, I believe, but they were... Yes, that, did some I know about it, sure. Okay, yeah, if you could talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, my friend Giulio Fanti, who is a an engineer, but also a great student of the Shroud, decided to take two existing... Uh, tests that were used for other purposes. Uh, one of them is called FTIR, which is Fourier Transform Infrared. That's one way of analyzing uh, chemically uh, specimens. And the other was a, a tensile strength mechanical testing of fibers. And he took those two tests and came out with a date of 33 AD. How ironic. Unfortunately, neither of those tests have ever been used for dating archaeological specimens. And so, although Giulio proclaimed that this is proof of dating of that sample that he had, that fiber that he had had been embedded in a, uh, for 40 years, almost 40 years. And so, it really wasn't the best fiber to test for tensile strength. And nobody's used that tensile strength test to age date any specimens. So, Fonti has used that as a basis for making these claims, but unfortunately, the, nobody else has ever repeated the experiments to verify if that's even come close to being accurate, and so I cannot consider that a viable test at this point in time. Well, one of the questions that kind of always interesting, of course, to the audience, is you're a Jew, and yep. this is obviously a very important Christian relic, although I think many Christians forget that it was that Jesus was a Jew. And That's so right. It would be natural that a Jew would be interested in another Jew. And well, you why know, I didn't, been, I, I didn't think right. that at the beginning, but I do now. Why is that so? Why is this so important for you to stay involved in this research? And you know, you go around and and speak a lot about this. Why? Why do you have such a commitment to this? Well, look. I was one of 24 researchers given the great privilege of spending five days and nights around the clock with this piece of cloth. Now, even though it has less significance from my faith, um, it's important to a billion or so people on this planet. And here I am, a guy that really didn't take it very seriously at the beginning. And, you know, I said I was thinking free trip to Italy. here I was given the great privilege of being in that room. Well, when we came back and we finished our work over the next three years, I never felt that I'd finished. You know, I was used to doing projects for clients, and it isn't finished until you deliver the, the final, final result. And so I somehow felt unfinished. And I felt also that the privilege that I was given brought with it a responsibility. And that was, as the man who was responsible for documenting the event and the work that was done, that I should make that material available. And so uh, back in 95, not long after I had the Adler conversation about the blood, I got another call from a friend of mine. And my friend said, you know that shroud thing you're involved with? Well, it turns out that's just a photo made by Leonardo da Vinci. And I laughed. I thought he was joking. 
And finally, I said to him, well, wait a minute, where are you getting that information? And he pointed out that he and his wife were checking out at the grocery store, and they saw it on a tabloid. While I was on the phone with him, I had this epiphany, and I wrote four words down on, my, on a manila folder on my desk, consider building a website. Because here's the thing that I've come to believe. I wasn't in that room for me. I was in that room for you, for those who couldn't be there. I was the eyes and the ears of those, for those people to whom this is really important who couldn't be in that room. So I felt an obligation that came with that great privilege, and I'm fulfilling that with Shroud.com and the lectures that I now give around the world, including teaching a course at the Pontifical Seminary in Rome, so they got a Jewish guy to come in and teach future priests about the Shroud. And, you know, I couldn't think of a better thing to do for the rest of my life than to bring this information to those to whom it's important, and it, it's become a legacy for me, something that will live on beyond my time, and that's a gift. Most of us never get that opportunity to do something that lives beyond us, and so this work has the gift to me is that it's a legacy that my grandchildren can show their kids someday that this is what your grandpa did, you know? So I feel honored to have been given this great privilege and I'm going to fulfill that obligation until the day I'm done, I'm finished. Well, folks, here's a man who's a Jew who is convinced that this is Jesus of Nazareth that was buried in this cloth. And regardless of where you're at in your faith, I think it's a tremendous testimony to someone who is willing to look at the evidence honestly, when even it may not agree to what you always thought, but the fact that you looked at it and were, your own mind was changed, uh, Barry, from all of us, uh, thank you for the research that you've been a part of in sharing this. Barry, you travel around a lot uh, to give lectures. How can people find out where you're going to and to see more, more on this? If you go to Shroud.com and go to the late-breaking news page, which, by the way, the headline on the front page of Shroud.com always takes you right to that page. So the headline right now is uh, our 22nd anniversary, which occurred January 21st of this year. If you click on that link, which is a big, bold headline-type link, it'll take you right to the page that's the late-breaking news page, and then there's a table of contents, and one of them is my 2018 lecture schedule. So if you click on that link, it'll take you right to the lecture schedule for this year, and it'll show you all the places that I've been. I have to add a few more. Believe it or not, I'm going to spend three days in a Trappist monastery in eastern Canada in New Brunswick educating the brothers to the Shroud of Turin. Well, a recent thing that you had done, um, Barry, and actually with a, a large Muslim crowd, uh, there was well, a lot of interest. That's in yeah, this will be the fourth year in a row that I've been invited to come and not only speak, but to help organize a major shroud exhibit that's sponsored by the Review of Religions. It's a 116-year-old publication published out of London by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. These are not the Muslims that we read about in the news every day. We never hear about the Ahmadiyya Muslims because their belief and their motto is love for all, hatred for none. They believe the mainstream Muslims are misinterpreting their own uh, Quran and of course, their point of view is still not in, in, in accord with what Christians believe. They believe Jesus was on the cross, was brought down, was wrapped in the shroud. 
but survived. And they believe the shroud proves he survived. Well, rather than patronizing them, because I believe he was dead, and that's based on what the forensic experts that I've worked with personally have told me, I tell them, I said, look, I believe he was dead because I'm a photographer, I'm not a forensic expert, but the experts that I've dealt with through my career and, and my involvement with the Shroud, they've all said that. I have to defer to their expertise in that area, just like they defer to my expertise when we talk about image properties. And so I believe that uh, when, I, when I speak to my Muslim friends, which I'll be doing again in August, I always point out to them, look, this is a perfect example how exactly the same evidence can be interpreted 180 degrees differently depending on your perspective and your point of view. That way I'm not patronizing anyone. I'm sticking to the truth, which is really all this is about for me, is just telling the truth. And the truth is the evidence supports the authenticity of the shroud. I believe he was dead, and I'm certainly not trying to convince uh, 150 million Muslims that they're wrong. <laughs> so I don't go there with that intent. But I'm, I welcomed the opportunity to go there and foster a dialogue that can bring together Christians and Muslims and Jews. As a matter of fact, I got up in front of 35,000 people the first year I was there, and I said, you know, I've got to be honest, I was a little nervous about coming here. because. Uh, but then I saw their motto, love for all and hatred for none, and I told them, I said, look, I believe that I'm living example of your creed because you invited a Jewish man to discuss a Christian relic at a Muslim convention. Well, they cheered me like a long-lost brother. And you know what? I feel welcome there and never uncomfortable after that first uh, day or so. I feel that this is a positive thing, that if we talk to each other, there's much less likelihood of any animus and it's, it's a shame. I, I even said it that in America, we only get bad news about Muslims. And I pointed to 35,000 people and said, you are the good news. Well, you can see my little three and a half minute speech on YouTube. Just look up Barry Schwartz, you are the good news. And that three and a half minute speech that I made is on YouTube. One last piece. We got just a couple of minutes left and sure. we didn't get to. And that is the head cloth that people have ah. talked about. Sure. Can you share something quick about that? Sure, I can. First thing, let me say that when I first read the New Testament and read about the opening of the tomb and going in and what they found, it talked about a second cloth folded and separate from the other. Well, that would have been the face cloth that would have been put over his face, just like we still do today when somebody dies, we cover their face. They would have done that with Jesus, perhaps while he was still on or when they took him off the cross. It would have had his blood and pleural fluids from his lungs on it. Jewish law requires that be buried with the body. So when I read that, read that that face cloth was in that tomb, that told me this is an authentic Jewish burial, no doubt in my mind. And that face cloth, when compared to the shroud, which, by the way, it still exists. It's in Oviedo, Spain. It's called the Sidarium of Oviedo. I have seen it with my own eyes. When you line up the blood flows on that, they perfectly match the face of the man of the shroud, and some of the blood stains on the back of the head are the same shape. So it's very likely that those two cloths are connected, and that's why if you go to shroud.com, and uh, we have an internal search engine that only searches within our site. It's gotten so big. If you t search on Sudarium, you'll find a lot about it, because I believe those two cloths are related, and you can find out more about it on shroud.com. Well, Barry, thank you so much for being with us here on The Remnant Call. And, folks, 
Uh, thank you for sticking with us. I know we had a little technical snafu, the joys of live radio. Uh, but the, <laughs> tonight, Barry, has been excellent. I felt like you just really brought the evidence forward, and I just want to say thank you uh, for everything. And, folks, if you want to check him out, don't forget, it's Shroud.com. Shroud.com. If you can't remember that, well, you'll probably never find it anyways. And so, Barry, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show with us tonight. And may God bless you in everything you've done to share this good news of of the evidence of the shroud. Well, thank you and for having really me on the show. It. And let me say God bless to all of your listeners. All right. Well, thank you so much. I just want to wish a, a good night to everyone. And thanks for listening. This is Brother Frank and Barry from the Remnant Call saying good night and boom. Oh.